Well, if you have a Bible with you, and I hope that you do, you can open up with me to John chapter 14. Uh, we've been here for a number of weeks, and we're going to be here for at least one more, uh, as Steve's going to finish it up for us next Sunday. This chapter, uh, John 14, has been a, a pretty heavy one. Uh, there's a lot of things happening here. This. And we've, because of that, because there's so much going on in this chapter, we've spent several weeks looking at an event that may have only taken an hour or a couple of hours at best. And this section of John's gospel all started with Jesus washing the disciples' feet at the beginning of chapter 13. And then him telling the disciples that he would be leaving and they weren't going to be able to follow. And one of the real key verses throughout, I think, these two chapters, verse 13 and 14, is 14 verse 1, where Jesus says to his disciples, don't let your hearts be troubled, but believe in God. Believe also in me. Other translations say, trust in God and trust also in me. Or keep trusting in God, keep believing in me. And I think everything that follows that statement really builds off of it. Jesus says, here's why you don't need to be troubled. He said, I'm, I'm going to make a place for you. I'm going back to my father's house and making space for you, and then I'll come and get you. He says, here's how and here's why you can keep trusting and believing God. And here's why you can keep believing and trusting me, because I am God. And finally, he says, and by the way, again, he said this a few times, but you don't quite get it yet. Believing in God is believing in me. And trusting me is trusting God. But nevertheless, there's no doubt that the disciples are troubled. There's all kinds of emotions swirling in their hearts and in their being. And Jesus has, has seemingly just told them that in the, the very near future, only in a few hours, we know, looking back, that their relationship is going to radically change. Because it's been months and maybe even years that these disciples have been doing everything with Jesus walking step by step with him. They've experienced everything from the mundane, where we've got to find food, we've got to make a fire, to the miraculous. They've been with him through it all. And now everything's going to change. Jesus said he's going to go. They can't come. And so no doubt they're wondering, how can this relationship possibly survive? But Jesus assures them that even though it's going to change, things are about to change, right? It's not over. Our relationship will continue to grow and develop. And what's more, he says, their relationship and the relationship between them is going to be characterized by love. This is going to be the single defining characteristic of what will become the church. Their relationship with Jesus is love. Their love for Jesus will continue to grow, and it will be shown through their actions. And Jesus will continue to love them, and his love will be experienced through the gift of the Holy Spirit. Here's the important thing that we'll see in these verses and in the next and the chapters to come. And it might actually be one of those things that, that many followers of Jesus miss, which I think leaves us living less of what we've been called to and what Jesus promises us. Jesus doesn't promise just to make everything good when he comes back to take us to heaven, as if it's this, this distance, okay, things are bad now, but someday it's going to be good. Just, just persevere. There's that word again. Just persevere to that point and it'll be great although he does promise that. But Jesus promises that he will be with them again in the near future. He doesn't just talk about this kingdom that will come at some point way off in the distance, but the kingdom will come right away. The promise of heaven doesn't mean that we're cut off from Jesus until then, but the relationship with Jesus, ours, and the disciples will continue to go and grow right now. 
And that's the big idea, I think, in these verses, that even though Jesus is leaving, and he tells them, I've got to go, the relationship between Jesus and the disciples will continue to, to grow, continue to go, and it will be continue to be defined by love. Jesus will tell them how the relationship will continue in the future. And first, he'll focus on the disciples' love for him, that part of their relationship. This is, this is how it's going to work, guys. And then he will tell them of his own love for the disciples. So let me read our passage this morning. It's uh, John 14, 15 through 24. And see if you can pick out the keys, these sort of keys to their future relationship as I read it. John 14, starting at verse 15. Jesus says, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans, nor I will come to you. Yet a little while the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Because I live, you will also live. And in that day you will know that I am in the Father, and you in me, and I in you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Then Judas, not Iscariot, asked Jesus, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us? You will show yourself to us and not to the world. Jesus answered, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my word, and the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. A lot going on there, a lot that will be unpacked in later verses and, and weeks as we study this together. So let's first look at the disciples' love for Jesus. I think it's, it's probably safe for us to say that the disciples' troubled hearts that Jesus tried to calm in verse 1 is caused by more than just kind of self-interested concern for their own future. Hang on, if Jesus is gone, then what do we do? But I think the news hit them hard because they loved Jesus. They loved being with him. They deeply cared for their Lord, their master, their teacher. Their hearts, their lives have been knit together for the last number of months and years. But Jesus tells them how they will continue to show that love for him after he's gone. Actually, three times Jesus says that their obedience will declare their love. The first time is right where we started. In verse 15, Jesus says, uh, You will prove your love by, because if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. Now let me be clear what Jesus is not saying in that verse, in that statement. This isn't a statement of manipulation. He's not saying, Peter, if you were at all devoted to me, here's the list of things you would do. Here's how you would prove it. I think it's, I think it's really easy and definitely possible for us to read that into this verse. Okay, Jesus has been with them, going, he says, boys, if you actually love me, this is what you'll do. Can you, can you see how that might get there? I think it's also really possible for those who do not yet know Jesus to assume this kind of nuance or interpretation. They, they've maybe heard this verse or they've you know, read it on some blog and, and they pulled it out of context and say, look, if Jesus is just this, he's just some insecure whatever, begging to be followed, hangling the, the, the carrot of, of heaven out in the distance saying, if you follow all these rules, you can get to here. That's not at all what Jesus is doing. 
That's not what he's describing here. Obeying Jesus' commands, following his word, means to, to copy the life he lived. He's not singling out some of his sayings and saying, listen, okay, follow this one, this one, this one, and this one, and then I'll meet you in heaven. But he's describing someone who, who is committed to following him wherever he leads. He's describing someone who has cast aside every other concern except obedience to him. And guys, I've shown you light. I've shown you life. This is how life happens. This is how love happens. One writer says, loving Jesus is not like bargain hunting at a garage sale. You can't comb through all the things he says, pick whatever commands you like, and just disregard anything you find unappealing. I think lots of people and lots of us in our day do this with, with how we build our own understanding of the world, build our worldviews. Like, well, Christianity talks pretty highly about these things, but this other thing says nice things about this other area of my life, so maybe I'm good with that, and I'll take a bit of here, and a bit of here, and a bit of here. But loving Jesus means obeying in even the most difficult commands, the most difficult circumstances. And real love, genuine love for him, is actually shown when we obey the hard things, not the easy things, in hard times and not easy times. And you know what? The, the world around us will see that our love for Jesus is genuine when we gladly choose to follow him in the hard things in the hard times. Of course, Jesus will show us what difficult obedience looks like out of love, right? We'll talk about it at, by the end of the chapter and we'll see it by Jesus going to the cross out of obedience, love. The other part of this is, is love for Jesus must be our, our motivation for obeying his commandments. The obedience flows out of a heart of love, not duty. Without love, obedience is nothing more than really just self-righteousness. I'll just do all these things, I'll just muster myself into to living a good life and, and then God will owe me, or whatever. We'll never actually obey his word if all we feel is a sense of I've got to live up to the standard to live up to whatever it is, to his standard, to my parents' standard, to, to what the people in the church think of me, all these things. We'll never fully obey what he calls us to if all we want to do is have our good outweigh our bad. Matt Carter says, if we look at the words of Jesus and think, I can make him, I can make him happy if I do this one, or he won't be angry and disappointed me as long as I don't mess up on that command, then we are not obeying out of love for him. We're simply trying to earn his favor. If you want to conquer sin and obey Jesus, you don't simply try harder to obey. Instead, you, you stoke the flames of your love for him. The antidote for disobedience isn't obedience, but instead it's love. You struggle to obey Jesus. Then focus on loving him more. Beg God to give you a passion for Jesus. The greater your love grows, the easier that obedience comes. So that's, that's one side of the coin here. We can't obey Jesus if we don't love him. And if we are struggling to love him, we can ask him to show the things that are in the way and, and help us to love him more. The other side is we can't actually love him if we don't obey him. We might say that we love Jesus, but our actions or our lack of action might completely negate our words. One commentator I was reading this week gave this example. He said, when I was in elementary school, my buddy's dad drove the church bus. He said, I love spending Saturday night at his house and then riding in that bus to church on Sunday. And they would do all of these silly promotions on the bus routes. 
And one Sunday, everyone who rode the bus was given a cheap white kite with this written on it in big red printing, I heart Jesus. He says, looking back, I can picture dozens of kids who had no idea who Jesus was flocking to a park to fly their I heart Jesus kites. Now, how many Christians are like those kids? Our lives fly the I love Jesus kites, but love for him isn't evident in how we live. Because if we love Jesus, we'll live differently. We can fly dozens of kites, but it doesn't matter if we don't love Jesus. The only convincing evidence that we do indeed love Jesus is the way we live. Now listen, the world around us, especially now, needs more convincing evidence and less I love Jesus kites. Or fish on the back of the car, or bumper stickers, or Facebook quotes, or whatever it is. I was reminded this week, and I can't remember if it was from a book or a podcast or both, but uh, do you know why the church exploded in numbers at the beginning? From this handful of 11 disciples that Jesus is talking to, to being the dominant religion of the Roman Empire only 300 years later? Obviously, Jesus was at work, and the Holy Spirit was at work. We'll, we'll, We'll give God that, of course. But it was through the work of Jesus and the Holy Spirit in that early church that empowered them to live a life that was so radically different than the time that was. It was so radically different than the morals and the values of the Roman Empire. And it was so compelling to those around them that people were joining the church in massive numbers, even though it cost them relationships and business opportunities and families and even their lives. It wasn't because the early church tried to be relevant, play all the latest music and and have preachers wear the right clothes, whatever, whatever else. It wasn't about relevance, but the early church showed people a better way. They showed their love for Jesus. They lived it out. And living out a love for Jesus is a better way than anything the world has to offer. When we love Jesus, and we believe that he is in control and whatever he chooses to do is best, then we're less concerned with our agendas, with our emotions, with our comfort, with our ease, we focus our energy and attention on what Jesus cares about. He told us he's the life, he's the light, he's got everything for us. We've talked about the disciples and our love for Jesus, but we see also in this passage Jesus' love for the disciples. And I think his love for them is evident throughout this chapter, throughout this long uh, discussion that he has with them. But not only that, he says that Jesus loves them. He says he loves the disciples, but he also says that the Father does too. Look at verse 21. And because they love me, those who follow me love me, the Father will love them, and I will love them and reveal myself to each of them. I'm not sure about you, but if we really think about it, how often do we, I'll, I'll speak for myself, you can decide for yourself, but how often do we take for granted just how big a statement it is when we say, God loves me. Have you thought about that? I think if you've been around the church, it's like, well, yeah, God loves me. Of course I know that. Jesus loves me. Jesus loves me, this I know, right? For the Bible tells me so. We've heard it forever. But God, the creator of the universe, who spoke everything into existence, the Holy One who dwells in the heavens, in unapproachable life, if not for Jesus, loves you and me. That's unbelievable. If we believe in his son, he loves us. 
even though there's nothing that we've done to deserve it other than being his creation, which we didn't really have a part of, he has chosen to love us. God loves you. How, how would your life change if you gained just, just a small bit more understanding of that this week? How would your, your outlook on life look if you believed that just a little bit more today, that God loves you a little bit more today than he did yesterday, and maybe a little bit more tomorrow than he did today? How would that just change your entire life? I think that's, that's one of those things that we can dig and, and pray and meditate on and dwell on for our entire lives, and we'll never get to the bottom of the significance that God loves us. You know what one of the implications of that is? He loves us. He will never leave us. Look at verse 18. Says, I will not abandon you as orphans. Now, I can't pretend to imagine the feelings of fear and anxiety and uncertainty and just the crushing weight that, that would come from losing your parents or being abandoned by your parents, the ones that are supposed to love and comfort and protect you. And when Jesus told the disciples he was leaving, they felt as though they were being abandoned, maybe even orphaned. But Jesus' words here are, are tender and loving. He knows what's going on in their hearts. And even though they might not be able to articulate what they're feeling in this moment, Jesus knows and, and right away gives them assurances of his love for them. I was reading this week uh, of a, a pastor who had been through adoptions, and I, I, I trust this, I haven't looked into it myself, but he said there was one thing. Parents could give up their kids to adoption parent can put up their kid for adoption. But he said, when I read those papers that we were going to sign to take this child into our home, we could not give that child up. It was, it was permanent. God won't leave us as orphans. We are adopted, and he will not give us up. Jesus gives some assurances. First is the assurance of his resurrection. In that same verse, verse 19, he says, I will come to you. And after the resur resurrection, we see Jesus appear to his disciples, not to those who don't believe, but to the disciples. They'll see him again, and they'll see him in such a way that they won't doubt that he is the Son of God. Now for us today, we don't quite have this exact promise of seeing Jesus eye to eye, but we do have the promise of resurrection as well. He says in verse 19, Because I live, you will live too. And that promise is true for us today. We can look forward to that. We can know of Jesus' love, and we are assured of his love because he rose from the dead, he conquered death, and the grave for us. He went to the cross because he loved us, and he rose triumphantly so that we would no longer need to fear death. The other assurance in these verses is one that I think maybe we overlook in the church, as I mentioned at the beginning, is the assurance of his spirit. Again, throughout these verses, Jesus assures his disciples that the Father and, and he will send his spirit to indwell them to live in them in verse 16 the father will give them another helper now the word for for helper in this verse in verse 16 there in the original language is the word paraclete and it's a word that's a bit tricky for us to translate down into english some translations typically older ones like the king james and others will use the word comforter there but it's not quite right of course, we do find comfort in the Spirit, but the word's not quite there. When you hear the word comforter, what do you think of? What's the first thing that comes to mind? A what, sorry? 
a blanket, a nice, cozy, that's what I have written down to you, a nice, cozy blanket. I've got my feet up watching TV or something, right? I'm, I've got the comforter I'm around the fire. But when, when translators chose that word, again, it's, it's an older word, what it meant more was someone who stood up for you, someone who strengthened you, someone who, who put steel in your spine, you would say. Other translations use the word helper, including the English standard that we're using this morning. And again, yes, of course, the Holy Spirit is a helper. However, maybe again, this is just me, the term helper, what comes when you think of that? For me, it's more of a, a hired hand or a servant or I'm stuck doing this thing, so I need to get someone to help me. There's sort of a, a, a hierarchy, and I am above my help, my, my helping hand. Is that anyone else get that, or is it just me? Again, it's, it's the word helper isn't wrong, but it's just not complete either. Another word that we might use here for the Holy Spirit is counselor. Maybe you see that in your text as well. But again, what's the first thing that comes to mind when you hear the word counselor? Anybody? I can picture this little office in my high school that you would go to and say, here's my marks, good ones, bad ones. What do I do with my life? Or maybe we think of, uh, you know, a career counselor at university. Or maybe we think of uh, a therapist that we go to to help work through our stuff or help us with whatever else. And again, it's not that the Holy Spirit doesn't do those things. It's not that, that the Holy Spirit doesn't help us discern where to go with our life and how to wrestle through these things. But it's just a bit of an incomplete word. Paraclete in the first century was a legal term. Anyone ever watch, like, Law and Order? My, I grew up, my dad watched Law and Order, and so I watched Law and Order with him all the time. How do you address the lawyers, right? Counselor. Ah, now we're getting closer to what we mean. Think good lawyer. Someone who stands up for you. Someone who is, who is with you in the mess. Who defends you and is there right by your side every step of the way. And that's why some of our modern translations use the word advocate here instead. It's someone who is for you, someone who comes alongside you, someone who wants what's best for you, and someone who fights for you. All of those words, I think, help, help give us an understanding. Comforter, helper, counselor, advocate. That this is all wrapped up in there. Another key word to understand here comes right before. Jesus says, we'll send another counselor, another paraclete. Now again, without trying to just look at Greek too much, but there are two words for another in the original language. One of them, uh, and they mean similar things, but not quite the same. One of the words is, talks about two things that are, are similar, but not quite the same. So hypothetically, if I fill out my daughter's form and order two boxes of apples from ERS this week, and I get you know a box of Golden Delicious, and I get a box of Ambrosia, and so we're chopping up apples, we're putting them in lunches, we're doing all the things, and then one day I run out of one of the box of apples. Well, I can get another apple from a different box. They're similar, but they taste different, they probably look different, they're, they're not the same. Similar, right? Another one. The other word for another in Greek, the one used here, means an ex exact copy, something that's identical doesn't just mean something that will sort of fit the bill, but something that, you know, it's, it's the same. So when Jesus promises another paraclete, another helper, counselor, comforter, advocate, he's telling the disciples, you've got one of these already. It's me. 
I'm going to go away, and you're going to get the exact same thing back. Holy Spirit's going to come and fill that role that Jesus had been filling in their lives. Everything that Jesus had been doing with them, the spirit of truth, as Jesus calls the comforter, the counselor, the advocate, the paraclete in verse 17, will come and do. He will come and comfort and strengthen and teach and counsel and advocate for them just as Jesus has been doing. He'll do the same for us today. I try to read from multiple places preparing for a sermon, and I got sort of the same analogy from about four different people, so I'm going to use it. Have you ever wished you could just sit down and have coffee? Maybe especially in the last little while when things just seem to be chaotic. You're not sure what's going on, how he could let this happen, whatever. You wish you could just sit down and maybe you don't like coffee. Have a warm drink or a cool drink, whatever. Sit down and roast marshmallows with Jesus. Have you ever wished you could have uh, a face-to-face and just tell him about your day and, and ask him to help you make sense of it all? But we can We have that in the Spirit. Obviously, there's not a a physical body next to us, but the Spirit is with us, for us, counseling us, teaching us, leading us, wants to hear all this stuff. When we pray, we we can pray to the Spirit too, right? As God, three in one, we, we unpack our hearts to Him. Just like Jesus could comfort and strengthen and teach the disciples, we can be comforted and strengthened and taught through His Spirit who lives in us. Matt Carter, again, issues this challenge as we kind of come to a close in our text today. Have you really embraced this promise? You may be able to, to theologically discuss why the coming of the Holy Spirit is a good thing, but can you honestly say his role in your life is similar to the presence of Jesus in the lives of the disciples? Full disclosure, I'm working on that. I'm not there yet. Because we have downplayed this promise from Jesus in our lives and churches. Sometimes we've seen this, this part of our theology of, of life in the Spirit kind of go too far, and so we, we pull back, and we're, we're people of the Word and just the Word, and we don't want to get too crazy and all these things. Because of our zeal, he says, to defend the sufficiency of Scripture, we have forgotten the significant role of the Holy Spirit to play in the life of every disciple of Jesus Christ. Not just some missionary, not just some pastor, not just some person. This promise, he says, is not given so the disciples can get the answer correct on a theology midterm. But Jesus promised them the Spirit so they will know that his love for them will never falter or die, but it will grow and flourish even though he's returning to the Father. The promise of the Holy Spirit is their lifeline when the seas get rough over the following days. We can easily take the blessing of the Holy Spirit for granted. One of the things that I'm most excited about in the coming weeks as we keep working through John's Gospel is to learn more and more about all of, the, of what the Holy Spirit's present means in my life. We'll get there next week. We get there in chapter 15 and 16 and 17 as well. I look forward with anticipation to see what, what as we dig into these texts as, as individuals and families and as a church, as we dig in what it will look like as, as the Holy Spirit works in my life and your life and your families and for the life of our church. Let me pray. God, thank you for this morning. Thank you that we can gather together. Thank you for the privilege that it is to, to gather together with your people, to open up your word, to sing your praises. Jesus, thank you for your promises. You've not left us behind. 
You've not gone back to heaven and now just watching us make a mess of things down here, but, but you have not left us as orphans. You are with us. You are for us. You've sent the spirit that lives in us to be our, our counselor, our comforter, our, our advocate, our helper, all the things that you were to the disciples. Forgive us for when we have, have downplayed this too much in our lives. I pray that you would, you would reveal this truth to us new. Help us to, to hear your voice, Holy Spirit, to do what it says, do what you say. I pray that as we dig into the word that you would reveal more and more of these great truths and promises to us. We pray all these things in Jesus' good name.